Everybody, Montel here, and thanks so much for tuning in to Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And my guest today has a very interesting background. He began his career in law enforcement where he developed an expertise in drug and gang intervention, identification, and eradication. Soon after, he became an advocate to the end of the war on drugs. And in 1991, he began investing in distressed real estate and launched a total of 23 private equity funds. And today, he is the CEO of Glasshouse, a vertically integrated California cannabis-based company. Please welcome Mr. Kyle Kazan. Thank you so much, Kyle, for being a part of the show today. Thank you, Montel, for inviting me on. Absolutely. I don't know if I pronounced your last name right. Did I pronounce it right? Kazan would be the best, but I'll take whatever. Okay, Kazan, there you go. Well, let's back up for a second here, sir, because you're in a really interesting business for the background that you have. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your law enforcement background in L.A. County? Yeah, so um, so I, just prior, I had been a, uh, an inner-city school teacher in South Central Los Angeles from uh, 90 to 94, and, um, you know, I wasn't making very much money, and I missed being – I was a college athlete before that, and I missed kind of that team. And then I realized society would pay me twice as much money to be a police officer than to be a uh, school teacher. So I put an application with the uh, Torrance Police Department and they, they hired me and I doubled my money. And, you know, I was also dabbling quite a bit in real estate, put me, made me mobile. So it just felt like a good fit personally. And then I was part of a team. And, you know, so that, that was the, that was the impetus to get, to go into law enforcement. So you go into law enforcement and then of course, you know, you're, you're involved in executing and fulfilling you know, some of the draconian drug laws. What got you thinking that maybe the war on drugs wasn't the best and smartest thing? You know, it, it, it didn't happen like an aha moment. Uh, I wish it happened as an aha moment before I became a police officer, but you know, when you're going through six months of an academy out here and um, they're teaching the different laws that you're out there to enforce, uh, drug enforcement, it's, if you watch The Wire, you see it's just low-hanging fruit and it's everywhere. It's, it's in front of you it's, and you get accolades and you are looked at by your peers as a good police officer if you're hooking and booking, taking people to jail for violating the law. And so um, I, I became a, uh, you know, call it a, a drug warrior. Um, and then, the, you know, the Torrance Police Department uh, sent me to different trainings. Gangs and drugs are intertwined because it's a, an illicit market. So the gangs jump in and, and take it over. So, you know, uh, it, it threw me right into the middle of it. And then after a while where I leave the department, and it's a decent sized department, Torrance, uh, two different six-month periods and felony and misdemeanor arrests. So I was number one, and it, mainly it was taking people to jail for possession or possession for sale. Um, and as I got into the system, you know, having a business head on the other side, I'm, I'm watching the time I'm spending not patrolling for crimes, properties, and crimes, persons, but I'm taking people to jail for putting a bindle of methamphetamine or heroin or, you know, crack cocaine in their pockets. So they're not hurting anybody. And then I'm getting called to court and the DA's office and the judges and the bailiffs and then the jails. And after a while, you know, I, they became my informants. 
and I'm a pretty affable person. I think I'm a, I'm a very caring person. And, and these folks then were saying, Kyle, they'd call me at two in the morning. My wife used to go, who in God's name is called? This is on my day off. I said, yeah, they don't know. It's Mark doesn't know it's my day off. And I'd call them back and or they're on a payphone, And I'm like, Hey, what's going on? Like, you know, I'm ready to get off of drugs. And I'm like, I don't have anything, Mark. I, I have jail. That society doesn't give me any other tools. And they're like, can you, can you take me to jail as gently as possible and get me into some sort of diversion? And I remember just going, you know, Mark is a really nice person. You know, he just has a real problem. And over time, I just said, this is a stupid game. I, I'm running on a, like a mouse on a wheel and I'm getting accolades for being a good police officer, but I'm not, I'm not spending society's resources well. And, and I didn't feel good about taking Mark to jail when he was just a guy and I didn't really know him faceless, nameless to me. It didn't mean as much, but all of a sudden I start caring for him and finding out of his grandmother and, and then giving him money to help him get some food. I'm like, this is ridiculous. We should be helping this person. We, we should legalize this. And so, so basically towards the end of my five year stint, uh, my, my statistics went, went way, way down. And, you know, Mark would call me or other people would call me. I know they're holding. And I just, I would just talk to them and just let them go. Just like, you know, didn't even, didn't even know they're holding, but I knew and knew that they were under the influence that was illegal too. And I, I became, I became disenchanted and, um, and then just retired after five years, uh, which basically means resigned because I had no medical issues and then, and then went out and pursued business interests. And those business interests you pursued was you got involved in real estate. You had already been in real estate. Exactly. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But, you know, so I was a graveyard police officer most of the time, which is why I was getting those 2 a.m. phone calls. Um, and then during the day, I would be out, um, you know, putting partnerships together to buy apartment buildings and uh, going through that. And so I was really working that. It turned out I had a bit of a knack. And, um, and so I did that. And then would push my patrol car around at night. And, um, you know, it, the, everything seemed to work well about January of 99. It just felt right to say, you know, I have this business that it looks like it's going to be thriving. And, uh, you know, I served the people of Torrance, I think, uh, with as much uh, respect as I could and worked hard. But I felt it was it was a good time. And, you know, when I started the, when I started that company in 1999, it had 250 units under management. I'm still the majority owner. It manages about 7,500 units out here in Southern California, about $2.8 billion worth of real estate uh, from $20 million at the time. So I was able to, to really grow that business uh, over 21 years. Well, after being that successful in the real estate empire business, what made you decide to enter the legal cannabis market? So that's, a, that's a great question, and I probably get that question more than anything else in my life. Um, you know, somewhere around 2008, um, a group of uh, friends asked me what I thought about the, the drug war. So I'd been out of, out, out of policing now for, you know, call it not, about nine years. And I told them, I said, I think it's, a, it's terrible. They said, would you want to meet some people from LEAP, which at the time was called Law Enforcement, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And they were totally focused in on the drug war. And so I, uh, I met with uh, some members, you know, uh, Norm Stamper was the, was the retired uh, chief of Seattle PD. 
And they, they told me what they do and they, and they showed me the, the statistics that they'd compiled, which made that emotional argument that I had into a factual argument of how much, how many resources that we wasted and who we were putting in jail. And just, and I said, absolutely. I said, look, we pay, you know, we reimburse fees. I said, no, this is, this is my penance for, you know, for my role in a, uh, an immoral drug war, uh, a racist drug war. Um, and so I started speaking out. Uh, it was, it was relatively quiet. Um, and then legalization of marijuana picked up here in California under Prop 19 in 2011. And all of a sudden the request for speaking became massive. And all of a sudden I was on CNN, Fox, uh, all the local stations. And that's where people in the marijuana business started reaching out to me to see if I would uh, uh, help finance, invest, things like that. And, and I chose not to, uh, I, I upset a lot of people in law enforcement. They felt that including people that had trained me in drugs and gangs, they felt I was a real Benedict Arnold. And I said, look, if I invest with you, you're now already a target. You'll be a much bigger target. And LAPD still had a battering ram that they were using back then. And I said, I don't need to hear it at my front door at two in the morning. So at the end of the day, that was my, that was my first kind of, wow, this is a very interesting business. I just didn't want to participate. So that, and then rolling the clock forward after Colorado and Washington in 2013 legalized it in January 1 of 14. I started going to Colorado quite a bit because I knew the momentum was there. And being a history major in college, I felt that 1933, the end of alcohol prohibition, was going to happen. And I thought this might be something I'd want to partake in. Okay, but now it's interesting though, because even though the laws had passed, some of your former peers were still ramping up to maintain a drug war. Sure. You know, I think th there's no doubt about that, Montel. I would tell you the officers that I worked with here in, in Southern California, and I know many from different departments, these are thoughtful people and they will follow the laws that are on the books. They will enforce them. And most would tell me, you know, by the way, most police officers had used marijuana in their earlier lives and had, and had confessed to that during the hiring process. So when it came down to marijuana, most of them saw it as a relatively benign drug, but if it's on the books, they're going to, you know, most are going to enforce it. And so the, the, overwhelming majority, especially as time went on, was just tell us the law, tell, tell us how it should be enforced, and, and we'll do it. And, and most are good soldiers that way. But, you know, the chiefs, and I, and, you know, because I'm an older person, uh, a lot of my friends from law enforcement from the uh, 94, when I came on, they had, they had moved the upper echelons of police department. So I would talk to the chiefs, and they were the ones that were the most headstrong. They were against it. And, and I used to talk to several of them and say, look, there's a piece of pie that's going to be cut here for law enforcement. If you don't put yourself at the table and accept where things are going, you're going to be left out and you're going to be the ones who are, who are tasked to go into dispensaries, just like you are in bars by, uh, you know, with the ABC regulations, alcohol. So it was, it was less the line officer and much more the chiefs. And, and let's not forget, and this is the, this is kind of the dirty little secret that everybody should know. 
that budgets of police departments from the feds all the way down, um, they, they fund some of their operations through asset forfeitures. So the drug war is, is a profitable business for the police departments. They need that for their budgets. That's how they pay for a lot of the, a lot of their operations. And so I'm sure that's, that's part of the reason the chiefs were not anxious to see that go away, even with marijuana. And, um, that's an ugly, that's an ugly reality. It's probably a much, we can go much deeper into that at a different time, but, but I'm totally opposed to the asset forfeiture laws. Sure. I mean, you know, back then we were talking since uh, 2011, 13, I was, yeah. well, I had already been advocating for medical marijuana around the country for at that point for 10 years and was involved 100%. quite a bit in, in the California landscape, just in helping the municipalities, you know, come up with legislation or come up with rules and regulations. And um, I remember those times you know, back in 11 and 12, there were, even though it was not completely legal like it is now, there were dispensaries that were opening up, some of which were opening up illegally, but kind of being grandfathered in by city municipalities. So that had so to be right? You know, Montel, I, I will tell you, number one, let me give you a tip of the cap, because you had a lot of foresight and a lot of guts, because you... I mean, I saw you on TV. You you were enjoying a very thriving career, and, and to come out very publicly like that was was admirable. And you know, it came with with a lot of risks. And so I I appreciate it uh, and appreciate it today. So I honor you for for what you did. Um, the Prop 215 that you're referring to was voted in by Californians in 1996, and it it it, it and I was a police officer at that time, and we literally had no. Uh, no guidance as to how to handle that. And, and so it was really a mishmash and, and uh, the people that ran dispensaries ran the gamut from gangs and criminals to the finest people that you'll ever meet that are, that were growing and giving the plant away. Um, and it was just the regulations weren't there. And that was what was really missing because to me, you know, law enforcement is a tool of the government. The government is is us. And so we need to give direction to the government as to what we wanted to do. So Prop 64 didn't pass in the state of California until um, 2017 or 16 and went in and went into effect later. So, um, you know, it, it was it was really not good out here. Yeah, everything was a gray area back then. I remember, you know, talking to legislators when the the Bay Area, and you know, no one knew what would take place, you know, a hundred yards outside of their their city's municipality, which was really kind of insane. So then you decided to start. Is this when you started Glasshouse? You know, uh, it it is. It wasn't a vision, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you that you know, timing has been my forte in my investing career. Uh, luck played a big part of this. Um, I I wanted to buy some assets and participate in the in the business because I felt I, I, I had been fortunate in buying during some big downturns prior to and and during those downturns if I were buying an apartment complex I could I could borrow 75 80 percent and then I only had to come up with you know 20 25 percent of the price marijuana cannabis you had to come up with a hundred percent and and it was federally illegal and so I said, man, there is a massive capital dislocation that when 1933 repeats itself, we're going to we're going to have an opportunity just on a 
you know, looking at making money um, to, to really do very well. And so that's when we bought Bud and Bloom, which is a store that we were honored to have you uh, come in. I think you came in in 2016 or 17. Yeah. We, were, we were, I think, the 10th in Santa Ana and 10th in Orange County, California. Um, and it was a big deal when you, when you came in because you're, you're a hero to the marijuana community. Um, and, and then we also bought a farm up in, up in Santa Barbara. And the difference was we also bought the real estate too. And that, that's always been a bugaboo for the operators here is how hard it is because the rents, you just get gouged crazy uh, because the landlords are taking a big risk too. I mean, they, they can get their loans called. It, it was a very difficult situation. So I just thought we'd acquire some assets and I, you know, I, I've made a lot of money for people and they were willing to put money in and, you know, and, and by the way, the first page of my document to them was you should not do this. Hmm. And then, and then it was, here's the opportunity. And by the way, my business partner and I are going to be the biggest investors in this fund. And, and so uh, that, that was where we started in 2015, 16. And then we, we did four subsequent funds that acquired more assets and we started doing strategically to vertically integrate, uh, meaning we could go from the seed all the way to the ashtray. And, um, and uh, earlier this year is when we put all of those into what's the Glasshouse group. Um, and we're one of the largest growers in North America. Um, the, the one thing I'll tell you, or most, I'm most proud of Montel, is that um, we really care about the plant we really care about the people, uh, not just our investors, but but all of the people that work um, through this pandemic. They're out there cutting the plants, planting them. They're at the stores, um, and and our our patients, customers. Uh, we we really want to do right by this, and we feel like to be in this industry compared to real estate and and, and so many other businesses, we have a we have a, a higher responsibility to do things the right way. Well, you know, I mean, you know, a lot of people consider, you know, California is the biggest market and oldest market right now, legal market in the United States. It's viewed by many as being one of the most challenging because of a lot of the individual municipality regulations and taxation. How have you been able to navigate this really crazy, you know, revolving, evolving regulatory environment? Boy, that is a great question. You know, um, you know, you look at Florida and Florida forces you to vertically integrate and basically sort of gives you a moat to be a monopoly. Um, California, they just did it as the wild, wild west. And, and I was part of Prop 64. Um, and we thought, I think the, the failure in our thinking was that we thought this would be embraced statewide because the voters embraced it. So we thought their elected leaders would. And as we sit here today, I want to say 70 or 75% of the cities and counties in the state of California are still illegal. So, it, and the ones that are legal, uh, that are legal, um, you know, everything takes twice as long and, and costs at least 50% more than, than your budget. It's, it's been a real, real battle. And, and we've watched a lot of good, good companies go by the wayside because they just couldn't afford to stay in business. I would say the differentiator to us was we took an extremely conservative approach and we bought all of our real estate for cash so that we didn't have, you know, very high mortgages. You know, we're talking north of 10% mortgages, uh, very high rents, which just buries you when you have these time clocks ticking, but you can't operate because you're just going through a morass of, um, 
of, of um, government um, regulation. And, and, I, and I'm for regulation, but, but that's, been, that's why we've survived and that's why we've, we've been able to thrive. And also being vertically integrated has been a, a boon for us. So we're able to, to drive higher margins, but it has not been easy. And to be here in 2020 um, and to be profitable um, we thank our lucky stars, um, and continue just, you know, driving forward. And quite frankly, we have about 300 team members. Um, the best, these folks, you remember March and April when COVID, you know, you thought this could be Italy and you're going to die. Uh, and these people still tirelessly went to work and felt an obligation to make sure people, there was a big run on our cannabis and they were, they were out there very brave. And so, um, you know, I'm just honored to be with with this group of people. If it weren't for those people, we wouldn't have survived. And then, you know, that's something that's really interesting to talk about is the fact that cannabis is, is appears to be almost like recession proof. It's, it's been pandemic proof. And this is in almost every state that has a cannabis regulation because it was deemed an essential service and proved to be an essential service. I think it's probably part of the reason why, you know, there's a less amount of, uh, protesting that we could have had if there was <laughs> available but you know at the same time california is also rife with the fact that municipalities in some ways have now overtaxed to the point that it's made it so difficult for anybody to start up that it's pushed some of the cannabis sales back into the black and gray market and i shouldn't even use the term black market but it's pushed it back into the illegal market and this gray kind of a market that, I mean, if you look at it over time, and I know you're, you're a guy who's a planner and you know, a businessman who's focused, how can you stay focused on securing the profits that you have when municipalities are working as hard as they can to slice into those profits as deeply as they can because they realize that you are recession-proof in a way. So there's a way, let's make some more money off of these guys. Raise taxes. Yeah, you know, the misconception that we battle from, I mean, every, it seemingly everyone is that, that we're rolling in money like Tony Montana, that we've just got like some sort of a, you know, a cash counting machine. And that's, that's just not the case. Um, you know, retail is retail is retail. Um, and the margins are maybe a little bit better than normal retail. Um, and the government, um, you know, they see this as a sin market and they, um, they extract quite a pound of flesh. I'm hoping over time. And I think there was some traction with the state of California to actually lower taxes, uh, at least give us a reprieve the illicit market. You know, it, you know, if, if our taxes all in are 35, 40% from the time you grow it to, uh, to the time you sell it to the, to the end consumer. I mean, that's 40% margin that, that you've given to the illicit market and the illicit market out here in California is more entrenched than anywhere else. And to boot, wherever you're, you are around the country outside of California, you go buy something on the street corner, illicit cannabis, it, the highest price is California. So it, there's, there's a lot of, you know, forces pushing this. Um, and it, it really makes it hard for the legal operator um, you know, some of the legal operators always rumored that they're that they're uh, involved in the illegal market. Um, we we have 
never done that. We have always stayed legal because that's, you know, that that's what I fought for. But but you're you're absolutely right. The government has has been a help in passing legislation, but they have been quite a hindrance. Um, well, Kyle, hold on a second because I got to take a little break and pay some bills. You guys have been listening to Let's Be Blunt with Montana. Our guest today has been Mr. Kyle Cousin, who is a really unbelievable guest. Very interesting background. Started out in law enforcement, and now runs probably one of the only or most profitable cannabis companies in all of California. He's a CEO of Glass House. We'll have some more uh, discussions with him when we take when we come back. So stick around. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back right after this. Winning season returns at my bookie. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. Winning season means insane props, epic bonuses, and the craziest cross-sport wagers. At MyBookie, winning season means watching live sports and betting live sports all season long. Rejoice! The NFL season has returned. That means action-packed Sundays and huge cash prizes. Get in on the action. Use promo code BEBLUNT and double your first deposit. New players get up to $1,000 in free play designed to add more excitement to the sports you love and the games you love to bet. Bet with the best this NFL season for your chance to win big. Use promo code BEBLUNT and double your first deposit. Your winning season begins today only at MyBookie. Welcome back, folks. Let's be blunt. Montel with today's guest is Mr. Kyle Cousin, who is the CEO of Glasshouse, a vertically integrated cannabis company in California. He started his career and his professional career in policing as a law enforcement officer and went from policing into, you know, being involved in real estate, then turning real estate into his primary business, starting a couple of hedge funds, and then transitioned into cannabis, which is really an incredible background to, to get in this business. And we were having discussions before the break. And uh, uh, Kyle, we were talking about the fact that, you know, California is really one of the largest markets when it comes to cannabis worldwide, and I think probably only second to uh, Canada, and it's viewed by a lot of people as being the most challenging market there is right now in cannabis, and part of the reason is because, you know, it's so tough to navigate all the evolving regulatory environment that's going on. Every single city has a different, every municipality has a different rule and regulation. I was involved, I should say, for 100% complete disclosure, and I had a brand that was uh, I was uh, moving into California, so I was in Northern California and Oregon, um, also just getting ready to move to Washington State, but I found California to be just so ridiculously daunting that we just had to back off a little bit. Um, how have you been able to keep running what is really probably one of the most financially successful cannabis businesses in the state? How do you stay ahead? So, so Montel, that's that's the question that now we get asked all the time at, at different investment banker conferences that we uh, that we attend. And what I would tell you is most people that are watching this, even in California, don't know that 70 to 75 percent of municipalities and counties are, in fact, illegal. So the legal businesses like like ours cannot participate. The illicit market is all over it. And, you know, given the fact that we pay the high taxes we talked about, it just makes it daunting. And it has not unfolded the way I think everybody thought it would. Um, it hasn't been embraced by the legislature, legislate, legislators of the different cities and counties, which has made it extremely challenging 
chalk it up as better to be lucky than good. We, um, you know, we did the exact opposite of real estate where real estate, you leverage up 70, 75, 80% with debt so that you make your cash go, go far. I did a complete pivot because I didn't know how crazy this situation would be. And thankfully, you know, we own, we, since we own our own real estate, we don't have 10 to 15% interest mortgages. We don't have crazy high rents. And so that's given us the staying power. And it turned out that the supply chain really, really matters. So if you decide to come in and say, Hey, I want to, I want to bottle my own wine in this case, my own, cannabis, you have to buy it from people like myself. And the prices, I mean, the average brand that doesn't have their own supply chain, they lose money on every transaction. It, it makes absolutely no sense. And so when, when other states, they're thinking of legalization, say, we don't want to be like California. I get it. Um, little correction, California is a, is a much bigger market actually than Canada too. We're the fifth largest economy in the world, which and that's bigger than Canada. So we are the largest cannabis market in the world, and I, I'm 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 very proud of the fact that we are profitable in the market that everybody wants to win in. And I feel terrible for those that have struggled, gone out of business. And and when people ask me, hey, I want to get into cannabis, I always am quick to point out that there will be some fortunes made, and there's going to be many more lost because it is so hard. And, and to be a small player right now in California, so difficult. It's just, I think over time that will change, but um, you're absolutely right. The, the perception that people have that California is the land of you know, the green rush, it's just not so. It's, it's so difficult here. It's so crazy to me, though, that when you go through the numbers and talk about 70% of the municipalities have it still being illegal, yet on their backyards and in their backyards, there is an illicit market that they are not participating in any taxes for. And I can't see the risk benefit or the, the benefit of trying to figure out how you can seize enough to make it any way beneficial to you as a municipality. It just seems crazy. What's it gonna to take to get the whole state to, to come up with some uniform approach? God, that's, that's logic over emotion, right? And that's, that's the battle we faced when we were just talking about the war on drugs. You know, if I told you, if you just legalized heroin, so many less, so, so many fewer deaths would happen if we took that approach. But the first thing you, have, you, you, you hear is heroin's terrible. It's like, we have an opioid epidemic, fentanyl. People are dying all over this country. Why do we still have that illegal? So, um, and, and I can show you a numerical argument where it's not even, I mean, it's, it's a fact that it would absolutely save lives to do that. But again, emotion over logic. And so um, I, think, I think now that we're in this crisis, this financial crisis, and California has been terribly hard hit, um, you're going to start seeing, led by fire, teachers, police unions, looking for revenue so that they don't have to cut salaries, they don't have to do furlough days. And one of the things that will be brought up is what if we started opening up some dispensaries? What if we started opening up, you know, uh, different different parts of the business? And I think we're gonna start to see that happen. Plus, the cities that have done it, um, by and large, have found, you know, Santa Barbara County, where we grow um, 
and half a million square feet of greenhouses, they were a they, they run a structural deficit. They called us during the pandemic and said, how are you guys doing? What can we do to help you? Are you guys okay? Are you guys going to be paying taxes? And we're like, yeah, we're going to have a record year. And so we, we pay millions of dollars to Santa Barbara County. As those stories come, I, I expect uh, not to lose any cities or counties because we're not having problems. I expect uh, that that will, that will make the business easier here. And do you think, I mean, let's take a look at that, uh, expand that out nationally. I mean, if you had a crystal ball, um, you know, the rest of the country has got to be looking at this the exact same way. I mean, that's the reason why you have four states that have, you know, uh, uh, laws on the books or, I'm sorry, I have uh, ballot initiatives that are pushing for um, adult use right now. And then, you know, two extra states, including the state of Mississippi, come on, that is looking to, you know, have a medical program actually fully legalized. In the state, I mean, do you see, what do you see on the horizon nationally? Yeah, um, great question. You know, the, the president we have right now, he's consistently inconsistent, right? It wouldn't, it, I, I don't think it should be legalized just, I mean, I, I would like to be legalized as soon as possible. I don't think it's going to be legalized, but you never know if Nancy Pelosi puts through the MORE Act, uh, and the president think it's gonna, it thinks it's going to help him because there's some social justice initiatives in there. You never know. You know, you, you just don't know what's going to come out of D.C. Um, but if you, but if you ask me to to handicap it, I would say sometime in 2021, 2022. You know, and I would point out that Republicans and Democrats, when you when you look at the states where it's been legal the longest, you know, um, Cory Gardner's Republican a senator from Colorado, which is a purple state. He can't afford to lose that. I mean, it's very popular in, Cal or in Colorado. When I say popular, people's salaries are dependent on these taxes. You can't, it becomes an entitlement to the state. You can't take it away. And so the politicians start falling in line. So as those dominoes, Mississippi, um, you know, and, and some of the other uh, states, it, it, it's going to, come to the point of just ridiculous to not deschedule it. So I think that's, it's just, you know, again, uh, logic over um, emotion. But I think if you ask me to handicap it, no later than the end of 2022, and it will be descheduled. And, um, and then it's just going to be a state's, state's rights issue and you figure it and, and, and everyone will just kind of figure it out for the, themselves. And in the state of California, again, you just already said that maybe some of these other municipalities that have been on the fence will start to gravitate towards passing. Do you, you see a time? I mean, in California right now, it's is it illegal in those municipalities that don't allow for sale for you to have possession? No. So it's a great question. Um, you can possess uh, you can possess marijuana at, at twenty one as a twenty one year old or older um, or eighteen with a medicinal card um, anywhere in the state of California. Um, and you can deliver it to any municipality in the state. So those 75% that are not legal, you can still deliver to them from, you know, a neighboring or somewhere, somewhere where you're legally licensed. So that, that has made it where, to your point, you know, like the city of, uh, you know, I live in Palos Verdes. None of the four cities up there have it legal, so they get no tax. But you can call a delivery, you can call our dispensaries, and we'll deliver it to you. And so the city of Los Angeles will get the tax, or the city of Long Beach will get the tax. Um, and so 
I, I think at some point you'll start to see some of those some of those other dominoes fall. If nothing else, just why not take a piece of the pie? You're just losing it right now. Right. And let's change the, you know change gears for just a second. But what do you think is one of the biggest issues? You know, really holding back this entire industry. I I've been saying you know, now four years that I think one of the biggest problems with the campus industry is education, 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 education. We've done a great job. You've done a great job and from a B2B standpoint, from a business standpoint. But, you know, we have really, I think, done one of the poorest jobs in educating the consumer and educating the masses. I mean, you know, there are still people out here who don't even understand. I was just doing a podcast recently with a, a, a doctor who's a you know, a, uh, uh, one of the leading doctors in Washington, D.C., who, you know, took a course here recently at uh, George Washington University on the endocannabinoid system. And, um, you know, University of Maryland has just started this year um, its master's degree program in cannabis. But when you look across the country, they represent less than 0.01% of the colleges in the entire country that are teaching things that are scientifically proven information that's been out there. And part of that, I think, is because there hasn't been as big a push. There's been such a huge push trying to be profitable at selling pot, but not a good, huge push at educating people as to why they need to even buy it. So right. what do you think about things that this industry should do to literally help change our own equation? God, that's, uh, you know, boy, you're right on point. Um, the education, you know, we do it person by person. You know, in my neighborhood, I live in an affluent area, and most of the people don't see cannabis as a bugaboo. They see it as, well, I did it when I was young in college, but now I've heard it's really, it, 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 it's really strong. And so uh, my kids are doing it, but, and then I'll say, are you in pain? I mean, I'm, I'm 53. I wake up with a sprained ankle. I don't even know how that happened. And, and so when, uh, when I give them some drops of our very high CBD, very low THC, and um, to get their cannabinoid system going and take it four times a day won't get you high, inevitably they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. I feel so much better. I can golf every day. I'm not as swollen as I used to be. The inflammation has gone away. And so that's kind of a person by person. And then by the way, inevitably they'll say, you know, do you have some, I heard about edibles. And then I, I, teach that very carefully so they don't have a bad trip on that but typically then people are like okay maybe i'll drink a little less wine a little less beer a little less tequila and i'll enjoy that and so it's happening slowly you know i i tried to do what you said and i'll tell you some of the problems um i i got together with the um the head of pharmacology at the university of california irvine a guy named dr daniel piamelli and i saw him on some youtube clip and i was like okay he gets it and he and I had uh, uh, U.S. Representative Dana Rohrbacher at the time who represented that area. And we came, we did an infomercial, an, in, an informational at UCI and basically it had to be privately funded by some donors because you, the University of California, Irvine gets federal money. So all those schools that get federal money, which is all of them, they don't want to risk that. And they're talking about a federally illegal substance. But when you listen to what he had to say, it was, this is a foregone conclusion for so many, the CBD works for so many different ailments that it, it's a crime that it's, that we're not taking this much more seriously and we're not getting the information out. But I think a lot of this just comes down to federal legalization so that people at these universities can then 
open up more programs and talk more about it and get more research done. But without a doubt, Montel, CBD has been a game changer. I'm gonna share with you this. My wife has had both of her knees partially replaced. The first time they gave her a bunch of opioids and she didn't like that idea. And I gave her some of our um, Glasshouse um, wellness product, which was just some tincture she put under her tongue. And she found great relief. The second time she went back to St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica, they were gonna hook up an opioid pump and she said, no way. And they, they sent the anesthesiologist in and said, you know, this is major surgery. You're gonna be in a lot of pain. What are you, what are you gonna do? And she goes, I'm gonna take CBD. And literally, she was like, I need to get more information because this, this is worrisome. And my wife, after major surgery, used CBD. That's it. And the, the research is out there. The research is solid. It's being researched all over the world, here in the United States, overseas. And peer-reviewed studies are coming out talking about you know, the efficaciousness of CBD and other cannabinoids in an anti-inflammatory response. We know that for a fact now. And, you know, I understand why colleges aren't doing as much, but I don't understand why our industry is not doing as much. That's what I was referring to. Uh, that I think that, you know, this industry would behoove itself to literally start putting together tutorial information. Like you said, if you're going to fund a a video, then fund a video yourself anyway. Put it out there just to talk about the value of it. I mean, it's, there's there's nothing that can stop you from putting out information if it's educational information and if it's information that falls in line with what the federal government has said. And the federal government, which owns a patent on CBD, wrote in the abstract exactly what it felt its efficaciousness was. So therefore, you can say what the federal government said, and there's no reason why we shouldn't, especially even when you look at some of the research that's come out of University of Mississippi, you know, the federal government is the ones who put their name on the, the documents that come out of there talking about the efficaciousness of just CBD itself. But even if we're just going to talk about that, you look at the fact that in the last couple of months, there's been paper after paper after paper written about the extraordinary anti-inflammatory benefits of CBD and even looking at it during this COVID pandemic. So... Montel, I couldn't have said it. I, I, I mean, you should be the video that we should play for ourselves. That it, you said it so well. We on our advisory board, we have a doctor named Oren Davinsky. And Oren Davinsky, if if your child um, is battling um, seizure disorders, he's at NYU Hospital. He is he is one of the preeminent doctors for that, and he has said the same things. He said, "Look, we should we should be funding um, some studies." And, and he did that with Epidiolex, by the way. He was the one who helped get it through the FDA. So we take that very seriously. I, and when you said, you know, we're one of the few companies making money in California, we don't have tons of budget uh, to get that word out there. It's not easy. You know, that's why coming on a show with you is a way for your listeners to hear. It's like, look, before you go take Advil and potentially destroy your kidneys, before you take opioids and potentially become addicted, my mother became addicted. She'll get pissed that I said that, but you know, I've seen the downsides and you can die. There's not one recorded case of an overdose death from cannabis. And so, and my wife had no constipation, no, all the issues you get with everything else and it does everything you need. And, and by the way, I'm not claiming that it, it does anything with COVID, but what I have read is that when you have the cytokine storm, a lot of that comes from inflammation. And so that's part of the reason proactively 
I take CBD four times a day so that I keep my inflammation down so that if I do get COVID, I think I might have a, a better chance of not having that cytokine storm because I, I'm not having that inflammation. So there I'm is, with you, Montel. There is a peer-reviewed study document out right now talking about the advantages and the anti-inflammatory capability of CBD and cannabinoids versus the standard anti-inflammatories and how much more effective they are right now during COVID. So that's backed up by science and research. I gotta say thank you so much, sir, for being a part of the show today. Anything else you wanna add? You know, you know, Montel, I, uh, I, I wanna add how much I respect that you have been out there. And I know, I said a little bit earlier, but I know it was not easy for you. And, and right now it, it feels like dog years that that happened. But I just appreciate that you've you've been a champion for the cannabis industry, and I just want to thank you. Thank you for being for being you. Thank you so much, sir. I really and thank you for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Today we've been talking about talking to Mr. Kyle Kazan, who is the CEO of Glass House. And if anybody want to get information about your company, sir, where do they go? Glasshousegroup.com. Glasshousegroup.com. Glasshousegroup.com, get some information. It's a vertically integrated California cannabis company. Um, and, you know, if they want to come by, I, I can do this also. If they wanted to come by and pick up some product, where would they, where's, where should they go? Where can they? they well, th thank you. My, my marketing team will be thrilled and mad at me that I didn't do that on my own. Um, in Orange County, we own Bud and Bloom. In Los Angeles, we own The Pottery. And in Santa Barbara and Berkeley, we own The Pharmacy with an F. And I would tell you, consider going to pick up uh, some Glass House Wellness or some Mama Sue. Both of those are our brands with that very high CBD and ask the, uh, the, the good folks that work there how to use it. And I think, I, you know, I'll guarantee if you don't feel better, bring it back and we'll give you your money back. Well, there you go. You heard it here. So, again, we've been talking to Mr. Kyle Kazan, and I got to say thank you so much for being a part of today's show. And thank you guys for tuning in the way you always do to Let's Be Blunt with Montana. Uh, 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 uh,